1: Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Deuteronomy, or at least parts of it. We can't cover it all, but we're going to try. We're going to try to do our best to get into what is Deuteronomy, why does it matter, and why do we need to read it? So the whole context to the book of Deuteronomy is they're on the plains on the east of Jordan, and Moses is telling them, look, I'm not going to be able to go with you guys to the promised land. Let's cover everything that we've learned, children. Let's talk about what lessons have we learned, and we're going to reiterate the covenant. This is where we get the name Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, and that's from the Greek. It's the second law, or the second telling of the law. Exactly. Now, it is an odd book, and we're going to try and see if we can handle this carefully,
0: because... Mike and I have been hinting for years, if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you've you heard us talk about the reform that is associated with Deuteronomy and this major shift in the Bible that happens in Deuteronomy. There is considerable evidence that the five books of Moses, and specifically the book of Deuteronomy, were edited during the Babylonian captivity— so that time period after the Babylonians come in about 600 BC, right about the time that Lehi's leaving to go to America, and they wrecked Jerusalem, and they completely destroy the temple. And there were probably some really good people who were looking at this saying, we blew it. And looking back on the history and reading their text, they recognized why they blew it. Now. Latter-day Saints should look at this and recognize a common theme here, because we believe that Mormon is going to do the same thing. Mormon is going to edit Nephite history to a future audience so that they don't repeat the mistakes that his people made. The Book of Mormon is Mormon looking at Nephite history, a thousand years of Nephite history, saying, let me pull out the stories that will tell future generations to not repeat our mistakes. Well, that's what we believe these editors are doing during the Babylonian captivity. They're editing the text, and the Book of Deuteronomy gets a lot of edits, and bless their hearts, what they're really trying to do is say, hey, we got wrecked we blew it. And the warnings were on the wall the whole time. The Lord's been telling us that this is where we were headed and we weren't paying attention. So they go back and edit the texts to highlight maybe the mistakes they made to prevent
1: future generations from making the same mistakes. Is that a fair assessment, Mike? Yeah, I think that's good. I think another thing we can do is we can even back up and say, okay, so it was redacted. Where did the book of Deuteronomy come from? And it doesn't say this in Deuteronomy. So we've got to go to 2 Kings 22 and 23. And most biblical scholars are acknowledging that the story that's told in 2 Kings is the story of the discovery of what's called the book of the law. And so if you look in the chapter heading to 2 Kings 22, which we're going to cover in a few weeks, it says that Josiah reigns in righteousness. Now, his reign was 640 to 609. And it says that Hilkiah repairs the temple and discovers the book of the law. This text that we think is the book of Deuteronomy. So when Bryce says that it's been edited or redacted during the exile, I would agree. And that's found in 2 Kings 22 verse 8. And then they bring it to Josiah and he rends his clothes when he hears the words of the book. And then he makes these massive religious reforms, which we'll talk more about those reforms. But in essence, those reforms were sweeping in the sense that he went to the north in Israel and remember, the Israelites have been scattered in 721, but there are still people in the land, and he puts down the priests. He puts down a group of people called the Kemarim, and that word is translated as idolatrous priests, but there's a strong indication that the Kemarim are actually Melchizedek priests. And we put that in the show notes if you want to pull on that thread. In fact, that's kind of where we think we get the word Camorah, the last stand of the of the Nephites are at this place called Camorah, which that root kind of ties into these Melchizedek priests. So there's definitely some reforms that he does, in my opinion, that perhaps he goes too far. Now, it, it's contended. Not everybody agrees. But however you read 2 Kings 23, verse 5 says that he put down the Camorim, and then he takes away the groves in verse 7. He breaks them down. And that word is the Asherah, the Asherim or the Asherah. He puts them down and he makes these religious reforms and pushes towards a religious perspective about God, where we centralize worship, we bring it into Jerusalem, we deny that God is corporeal or that he can be seen. The temple is no longer a place where God will dwell, but it's a place where his name shall dwell. And those theological changes that Josiah is making, we can't read 2 Kings 23 and say it's all bad. I think one thing Bryce and I are going to agree on is the changes that he's making, some of them are really good, and we're going to talk about those. For me, a lot of this stuff, I kind of have to, I spill it out in the show notes because there are so many threads, but that's the big picture is he makes these changes based on this text that's discovered, this text that we think is the book of Deuteronomy. Many scholars call this the double redaction of the Deuteronomistic history. That's a mouthful. But what they're trying to say is there's evidence of Deuteronomy being really old, And there's evidence of it being edited later. Let me give you a couple
0: of examples just so you can kind of see in the text what we're talking about. In fact, let me take you back all the way to Genesis and show you a couple places where they show their hand that this is being at least redacted or edited many, many years later. Remember when we talked about Lot escaping and how the two daughters had that incestuous relationship? They both got pregnant and then out of their wombs come two nations. The very end of chapter 19, verse 37, it says, The firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. The same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. See, that's clearly been written many, many years later. In other words, they're telling the story of the origin of the Moabites, but then they throw that, oh, and that's how it is today. And then notice the very next verse. The younger, she also bare a son and called his name ben The same as the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. Do you see those two
1: little phrases, unto this day? They're markers or breadcrumbs that kind of give us clues as to when it was textualized, right? Let me give you another one. When Rachel dies in
0: chapter 35 of Genesis and they build a pillar, look at verse 20. Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. Meaning someone said, oh, and it's still there. He's making a point that it's still there as if they didn't expect it to be there because it's been a long time. So that's an indication, again, that whoever's editing or working with this text is saying, oh, and it's, by the way, it's still there in our day, which is many, many years later. Just a couple more, just so you can kind of see this throughout the text. Here's one in Genesis chapter 47, where Joseph of Egypt imposes a law in Egypt And they point out in verse 26, oh, it's still in effect today. So this law that Joseph put in effect while he was governor of Egypt, in Genesis 47, verse 26, it points out, Joseph made a law over the land of Egypt unto this day, as if to say it's still in effect these many years later. Just two more. One I wanted to point out in Deuteronomy at the very end of chapter 6, the whole idea is, verse 20, when your son asks in a time coming, what mean these testimonies, these statutes, the judgments which the Lord commanded us, what are you going to tell your children in a future day? And I know they're prophesying of what they're going to tell, but they kind of let it slip that they're writing this from a future day. Verse 24, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God, For our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. In other words, they're looking back on this story saying, yeah, he really did bless us like today, the condition we're in today. And then a really big one. I think this one really does indicate that it's being written in captivity, that when the Jews went to Babylon and they're in captivity, not that far after Josiah's reforms, and they're starting to redact the text, look at chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29 is a prophecy of the scattering of Israel, that Israel is going to be removed from the lands before they even get there. So, Deuteronomy is on the other side of the Jordan, that they're going to come in and possess the land, but then eventually they're going to be removed. And so, the question is in verse 24, why did the Lord empty the land after bringing the people in? And the answer is in verse 25, because they forsook the covenant. And they, verse 26, went and served other gods. So they're summarizing the history of Israel in the promised land. And then this verse 28. Now you tell me what time period the writer of verse 28 is in and know that this is the book of Deuteronomy before we even enter the promised land. And the Lord rooted them out of their land in anger and in wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land As it is this day. In other words, we're still in captivity. To me, that's an indication that whoever's editing or redacting the book of Deuteronomy is writing in captivity. The Lord rooted them out of their lands, sent them into other lands as it is this day.
1: You know, Bryce, in chapter one, in the very first verse, it's kind of saying this. Deuteronomy 1, one. Look at this. These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side, Jordan, in the wilderness. That's what it says in the English. Here's what it says actually in the Hebrew. These are the words that Moses addressed to all of Israel on the other side of the Jordan. So, the text is telling us that it's written from another time and place separated from Moses. So the people that are writing that
0: are on the west side of Jordan telling a story that happened on the east side of Jordan way back in the day.
1: Yeah. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy is telling you these are the words that Moses spake when he was over there on the east side. So just like Bryce is saying, it's telling us that this book is written much later. And so, Some say that the core of this are Moses' words and that they're redacted. Which is probably the starting point. They probably had a text that they had as as a starting point, but they're either editing or redacting it, right? I I think that's one argument. Another argument is that it's a seventh century production and that it's cast in the light of what's called an ancient Near Eastern vassal treaty. We'll explain what that means. And that it's used for theological and political ends. And so there's people that take that position. I'm not going to take a position because I see so much happening here. And I can't escape looking at the Book of Mormon and using it as a lens to read Deuteronomy, which changes everything, because I think the Book of Mormon really opens up some possibilities. And that's the position that we're in as Latter-day Saints.
0: So right before Lehi leaves for America, Josiah comes in and makes all of these reforms and really does—it's kind of an overreaction. I have an ancestor who walked the plains barefoot— And she'd never had shoes. She bloodied her feet walking from Nebraska to Salt Lake. She comes to Salt Lake. She gets married and she refuses to let her children ever go without shoes. They can't go play in the backyard without shoes. Now, they didn't understand why, but the reason was she was kind of overreacting to her situation by imposing upon her children kind of an overstep. So, Josiah is going to kind of go too far, and he's going to over-reform, bless his heart, trying to bring them back from apostasy. But Lehi is going to correct a lot of those oversteps, and this is the beauty of the Book of Mormon, is as first Nephi takes off, coming right out of that Josiah period— Lehi is going to correct a lot of the oversteps, which gives us authority to say they were oversteps. I think we can read the book of Deuteronomy and we can read the Josiah reforms and say that one went too far because look what the book of Mormon does. The book of Mormon is balancing us and bringing us back to where we should be. So during the Old Testament, they went way too far in one direction. Josiah pushes them way too far in the other direction. And the Book of Mormon says, let's balance that. And that's the beauty of the Book of Mormon is we get to see the corrections that Lehi makes to the reforms of Josiah. And so uh, the Latter-day Saints are shouting hallelujah that we have the Book of Mormon so that we can look at the Bible and say, that was probably going too far and we should balance that. Now, they got a lot of things right. And Mike and I are going to go through the book of Deuteronomy and say, here are a lot of things that they got right, and the reason we can say that is because they conform to what the Book of Mormon is teaching. The Book of Mormon is saying, no, this is the right thing, and that's in the Book of Deuteronomy. But these are the corrections, and that's what we need to correct. So as Latter-day Saints, we're in a really good position to look at the Bible and say, this was too far, and this was really good,
1: looking at what Lehi does in First Nephi and thereafter. Yeah, I think that's a really good assessment. I think if you pick up the book of Deuteronomy and you read it cover to cover, and then you pick up the book of Genesis and you read it cover to cover, you realize there are some major differences. And so in scholarship, since Wellhausen and others, they've looked at the book of Deuteronomy and they've realized that there was a historian sometime in the 7th century and then later that put together a corpus of texts that they are going to call the Deuteronomistic history and what that means that's a mouthful but what the deuteronomistic history essentially is is it's this term that's used in modern biblical studies to explain who the deuteronomists were and that refers to a group of authors, redactors or editors of part of the bible the deuteronomistic history or the deuteronomistic books of the bible are generally said to be these books deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. If you read that corpus of, of literature and you read them in isolation, like if you just read those books separate from the rest of the Bible, what scholars have found is that it seems to provide a complete history of Israel from Moses and the covenant at Sinai all the way to the Babylonian captivity. And it presents close to a shared theological perspective. And so in scholarship, these books are generally called the Deuteronomistic history. The problem as I see it is if we do a deep dive into Deuteronomy and then you read the New Testament, there's problems because they don't jive. Things that say things like you can't see God, the mysteries cannot be known. I mean, read the book of Revelation, read Isaiah. There's some tension there. And then you read first Nephi. And then you you go, okay, Nephi is definitely disagreeing with some of the Deuteronomistic reformers. Now, we talked about some of this when we talked about the Book of Mormon, but when Layman and Lemuel contend that the elders of the Jews are in the right and that Lehi is in the wrong, I believe it's they're saying that because they have the perspective of the Deuteronomistic historian or the, the group of people that are kind of reforming the religion of the Jews, and their perspective sits in that space of how the Deuteronomists viewed God, how they viewed visionary experiences and and mysteries. They definitely didn't like those things. And so they sit in that position and Lehi says, look, I know there's visions because I've seen them. And so Lehi takes another approach. And like Bryce said, we're pulling the pendulum back to the center. We're trying to bring it back to show that here we are at the turn of the century, 600 B.C., and the theological fights they're having in and around Jerusalem. Which would explain why Lehi was hated, why his life was threatened.
0: When you read, he went out and preached that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and that Jesus was the Christ, and why would that bring such hatred towards him? But he was doing more than that. He was kind of going the opposite direction of these Deuteronomist reformers. And he was saying, no, you've gone too far, and this is what the correction is. And that I think will explain why Lehi's life was in danger and he needed to leave.
1: Yeah, excellent.
0: So now let's jump back through the book of Deuteronomy. We may jump into chapters not assigned to Come Follow Me just to show you examples of these, but let's make a list of things that we believe that the Latter-day Saints in our position can now point out and say, nope, that went too far. That is not in harmony with the restored gospel. Things you're going to find in Deuteronomy that push the pendulum the opposite direction.
1: Yeah, let's do that. So the Book of Mormon never uses the phrase, the Deuteronomists did this, like they don't use that phrase. But the Book of Mormon does tell us that Lehi and Nephi were at odds with the Jews of their time and that their ideas did not completely harmonize with these people. And so some of the things that they disagreed with are the following, Lehi teaches about a suffering Messiah that's going to come to earth and die. And that seems to cause the Jews anger. I mean, that's 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 19, and 1 Nephi 10, verses 1 through 15. The Deuteronomist position is that God is not seen. Now, if you remember back when we talked about Exodus 33, there's all this stuff in there where Moses speaks to the Lord face to face. But if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, We read some interesting passages. Verse 12 says, The Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only you heard a voice. And then verse 15 says, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. This idea that God cannot be seen is a fundamental teaching of the book of Deuteronomy that I believe is in contradiction to Christianity, to Isaiah chapter six, to Isaiah's message, to John's message, to the book of Mormon prophets that have seen him. And so why would they say this? And and this is purely speculation. But one of the things that I see in the book of Deuteronomy is what I call name theology, meaning that instead of the temple being the place where God shall dwell, as outlined in Exodus, and we give you some examples in the show notes from the book of Exodus and other places, the idea that God tented or tabernacled with the Israelites, the book of Deuteronomy stresses that the temple is not the place where God shall dwell. The temple is the place where his name shall dwell. And so we see this all over in the book of Deuteronomy. We see this in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. We see it in the 12th chapter. The 12th chapter of Deuteronomy is a big deal. So we see that in verse 5, 11, and 21 of chapter 12. We see it in chapter 14 of Deuteronomy, verses 23 and 24, and finally in Deuteronomy 16, 6. The idea from the book of Deuteronomy is that the temple is a place where God shall choose to put his name. And why does it say that? I think it says it because he doesn't dwell anywhere, because he is non-corporeal in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, there's a couple more I want to talk about with the book of Mormon and how Lehi and Nephi stand in opposition to some of these theological views of the historian that put together Deuteronomy. And one of them is the idea or the prophecy of Jerusalem's coming destruction. A lot of the work on this has been done by Celian Woods. And they explain, quote, the reforms of Josiah in conjunction with Judah's perception of the invincibility of their city promise in the Davidic covenant. We'll get to that when we get to Samuel. And the miraculous deliverance of the city during the reign of Hezekiah reinforced the people's belief that the great city of Jerusalem could not be destroyed. And part of this is coming out of the history because When we get to Isaiah, we'll see that Hezekiah does some things that shows, at least to the Jews at the time, that the city was invulnerable to attack because they were protected during that reign, during Hezekiah's reign. But in the Deuteronomistic history, Josiah is depicted as a second David and touted as the ideal Davidic king. And we see this in Kings. We see it more in Kings in the narrative there than we do in Deuteronomy. But the Deuteronomists that wrote Kings and that were putting together the edits to Deuteronomy stand in that position, that they're not going to have the city destroyed. So what do we read in 1 Nephi 1:4 1, and 1 Nephi 1, verse 18 and 19? What do we read in those verses? we read that Laman and Lemuel say that the city can't be destroyed because they're sitting in that political understanding of the Deuteronomists. Two more. Lehi's construction of an altar outside of the Jerusalem temple in 1 Nephi 2 verse 7 stands in complete opposition to Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12 basically says, look, here it is. It's right here. The place where God shall choose to put his name, all of the other altars, they have to get destroyed. All of the other temples throughout the area have to be destroyed. This is the place. We're going to centralize worship. And so when Lehi builds that altar, Laman and Lemuel get upset. And I believe it's because they're taking that position. They've read Deuteronomy. And then finally, the visionary experiences of Lehi and Nephi. In First Nephi 2.11, there's an example. But in essence, they're coming at him as a, quote, visionary man. And Deuteronomy pushes against this idea about the mysteries. If you go to the 29th chapter of Deuteronomy, it seems to indicate the secret things belong to the Lord our God but those things which are revealed belong unto us. So the tension in that verse is that the secret things belong to God. We kind of have the stuff revealed to Moses. Let's just keep the law. And a big deal in the book of Deuteronomy is keep the law. Moses is our guy. And that a visionary person, they're to be at least questioned. Moses was the only authentic visionary person. Yeah. And if you read Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine and you compare it to 1 Nephi chapter 1 verse 1 what does Nephi tell us he says i know the mysteries i know them and so the book of mormon authors clearly stand against those theological views but there's a lot of good things in deuteronomy and there's a lot of things that the book of mormon writers and prophets see with Deuteronomy and they take and they run with, which kind of leads me to my big picture statement, which is this. I believe that true religion is that we go with what's true. If it's true, we believe it. And so my take on reading the different sources of the Pentateuch, you know, D and E and P and J and all those things, I see Nephi taking the best of all of them and letting go of the stuff that doesn't work. And I think that's a really good way to look at Deuteronomy. It's a great list, Mike.
0: Now we're going to be able to go back through Deuteronomy and say, here are the things that we believe they really got right, that the reformers of Josiah and the redactors in Babylon said, boy, Israel was going astray, and they brought us back to a correct path. There's a lot of things that they got right. One of the things they got right was the Abrahamic covenant and the purpose of that covenant. The New Testament Jews are going to get it wrong in one direction, and the Old Testament Jews are going to get it wrong in the other direction. The Old Testament Jews were too much like the world. They understood that their responsibility was to go save the world, so they went out into the world but became like the world. And so we've got to correct that. We can't be like the world. We've got to be separate. And so this whole book is filled with, you can't reject the Lord. We have to follow his statutes. We can't be like the people around us. For example, in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, he's going to say, when you go into the promised land, they're going to be doing all sorts of weird stuff, divination and walking through fire and necromancers and enchanters. You can't do that. You can't be that kind of people. You can't be like the world. The other side, though, the New Testament Jews are going to go too far the other direction. And that is, we're so much better than the world. We are elite we're separate from, and we're, a, we're better than the world because we're the children of the covenant. And they take pride in their identity, and they mock everyone else that is not part of that. Do you see how that's the opposite end? Well, listen to how the Deuteronomists address that. In chapter 7, you kind of see this balance being presented. He says, when you go into Jerusalem, don't make marriages, don't covenant with them. So in verse 2, he says, make no covenant with them, nor shew mercy unto them, neither shalt thou make marriages with them don't let your daughters marry them, don't let your sons marry their daughters, for they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. Now, that's interesting being spoken from the Deuteronomist perspective because they're looking back and saying, that's exactly what we did. That is exactly the problem. We became the people we were trying to save. So in our attempts to go into the world, we symbolically married them, and they turned our hearts away. So let's correct that a little bit. Let's be separate from the world. But then we got to correct the other side. So he says, starting in verse 5, ye shall seek to destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. For we are a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto them above all people that are upon the face of the earth. In other words, we have to be different from the world in order to save the world. Now watch what is said next in verse seven. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number. He didn't choose you because you're better. He chose you to keep a covenant, verse eight, but because the Lord loved you, And because he would keep the oath that he had sworn unto your fathers, that the Lord might brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh the king. Now, why? Why did the Lord do that? Verse 12, wherefore it shall come to pass that if you hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he share unto thy fathers. He will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land. And then verse 14, the Lord shall bless thee above all thy people. We're coming back to that covenant. I'm gonna bless you so that you can make a difference in the world. I'm gonna bless you, not because you're better, but because you have an assignment and your assignment is to save the rest of the world. Don't be like them stay separate from them, but you've got to go out and save them. And you see that balance? That's one thing that the Deuteronomists got very right. And they even got the future right because looking in the past, the Old Testament Israelites had gone way too far into being like the world and the New Testament Jews are going to go way too far in being separate from the world. And they're trying to say, you've got to be a special
1: people so that you can save the world not because you're better than the world. And you know, Bryce, with this idea of you keep the commandments and you'll be blessed, that is very much in line with what Nephi teaches. And yet there's also this tension with Nephi's writings versus the Deuteronomist perspective. Nephi says, we keep the law, we obey the commandments, but it's Christ that prospers us. It's Christ that saves us. To Nephi, it's the blood of Jesus that brings us home. And I think the Deuteronomist really pushed towards, boy, if we really keep the law really well, the law is what's going to fix it. And so then that tension exists in the New Testament when Jesus talks to these individuals that are so zealous keeping the law and Jesus says, okay, you're really good at keeping the law, but you kind of missed the whole point for I desired chesed rather than all these sacrifices or all this obedience. That, that word chesed comes from Hosea 6.6, 6, but it's throughout the Old Testament. And it's a word that just means loving kindness or great, great affection. God is a God of great love and affection, and he will move heaven and earth to save his children. And he wants us to feel that way about him. That's such a common message in the Book of Mormon. Do you remember Sherem?
0: the Antichrist who comes and says, no, we just got to keep the law of Moses. Keeping the law of Moses is the right way. And Jacob says, no, Jesus is the right way. And then the priests of Noah kind of fell astray back into that Deuteronomist idea that we teach the law of Moses. We be the priests and we teach the law of Moses. And Abinadi comes and says, no, it's Jesus. You've got to teach Christ, not the law. The law points us to Christ. The Book of Mormon sits in this tradition that the law simply points us to a Redeemer and the Redeemer saves us,
1: but it was that Deuteronomist position that it's the law that saves us. Yeah, absolutely. So some other themes that Deuteronomy teaches that coincide with the Book of Mormon are the use of temples. Deuteronomy 12 and the Book of Mormon clearly stress the use of temples. Both books, Deuteronomy and the Book of Mormon, recite past history. They're books teaching us about history. And both books have covenant renewal ceremonies. When I say covenant renewal ceremonies, look at Deuteronomy as a whole, and it's constructed in the pattern of an ancient Near Eastern vassal treaty. So, there was this king, Ezerhadon, in Assyria during the time when Deuteronomy, we believe, was produced, and he sent these vassal treaties. We found them. We've read them, and the entire book of Deuteronomy follows this pattern, and one of the first people who discovered this was a Catholic scholar by the name of William Moran. He studied with Albright at Johns Hopkins University, and he learned Akkadian. And he found that the entire book of Deuteronomy, it's much longer than the ancient Near Eastern Vassal Treaties, but what it did was it followed the same pattern. And what the ancient Near Eastern Vassal Treaties did was this. It was a document which put the subjects under oath to keep the law of the leader, the king, the suzerain, as they're called in scholarship. And it started with a preamble hey, I'm the king, do what I say, and then an antecedent history. Ezra Hadon has been the greatest guy ever. These are the things he's done for you. And then the bulk of it are the terms of the covenant. These are the things I want you to do, and the big one was pay your tribute. And then there would be a part where there were formal witnesses to the covenant. And then at the end, there was a recital of blessings and cursings, And then finally, the recital of the covenant and the deposition of the text. That's the pattern in the ancient Near Eastern vassal treaties. And one of the things these treaties did was they commanded the subjects to, quote, love the leader. They had to love them. And that's going to be a big theme in Deuteronomy. And so that's the pattern that he found. And we put a bunch of stuff in the show notes where you can literally read Bits of his treaty, and it's like identical to Deuteronomy. And so Moran was fascinated when he read this. He was like, oh my goodness, there's so much stuff going on here in Deuteronomy that's just like these vassal treaties. And they're commanded to love the leader and they're commanded to do these things. And the entire book of Deuteronomy follows this pattern The biggest bit of Deuteronomy is chapters 4 through 26, which are the terms of the covenant. That's the biggest bit, but it follows the same thing where there's blessings and cursings at the end and they deposit the text and the whole thing. And why am I talking about this? And why do I say this is one of the things the Book of Mormon got right? Because the same pattern is in Mosiah 1 through 6 with King Benjamin's address, where he gives a preamble. And then he talks about the history. This is where we are. This is where we're from. And then he says, here is the covenant you make. Are you going to make the covenant? And they say, we will. And then he says, okay, you're blessed. Now you are children of Christ. You've covenanted to take upon yourself his name. But then he gives some blessings and cursings. If you do this, you'll be blessed. And if you won't, this will happen. And then they recite the covenant and they deposit it. And there's witnesses. And my point of talking about this is the Book of Mormon is showing us that that formula actually works. You see, that formula is the endowment. If you've been endowed and you've made covenants in the temple, you have followed the ancient Near Eastern Covenant Treaty pattern. And I find that fascinating because... On one hand, biblical scholars looked at these vassal treaties and many of them said, well, the book of Deuteronomy must not be inspired. They're just taking the ideas of their culture and they're recasting it as instead of paying homage to the leader in Assyria, they're just paying homage to God. And they're thumbing their noses at the Assyrians, which I think there's some legitimacy there. But the book of Mormon shows us That this pattern is inspired. It's legit. And so what's the Book of Mormon doing? Yeah, it's proving that the Bible is true,
0: giving validity to the Bible. In other words, we can confirm that pattern because that's what we find in the Book of Mormon. We're in such a unique position as
1: Latter-day Saints because we have this perspective. So the Book of Mormon shows some legitimacy to this pattern. I mean, first of all, Joseph Smith in upstate New York— doesn't know this pattern. It's not discovered until after World War II. Like, it's not even discovered. And yet it's right there in the Book of Mormon. Which is an
0: interesting fulfillment of this prophecy. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, the Lord talks about the translation of the Book of Mormon, starting in verse 8, that Joseph brought forth the Book of Mormon. And then he begins to say, this is what the Book of Mormon does. There's this interesting prophecy in verse 11, proving to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true. That's an interesting twist, because normally we say, well, we believe the Book of Mormon is true because it's kind of like the Bible. But what this saying is, we believe the Bible, at least the parts of it that we believe, are the ones that are like the Book of Mormon. In other words, the Book of Mormon proves what parts of the Bible are true and which ones are not. That is what we're talking about today, that the Book of Mormon stands as a witness that these things are correct.
1: So, I like that. I like that idea of this covenant ceremony in Deuteronomy. It's tied to the Book of Mormon, it's tied to the temple. There's some legitimacy there. I love that. Let me do another one. Think
0: back through the teachings of Lehi and Nephi early on about if you obey, you'll prosper in the land. It's a very common statement in the early parts of the Book of Mormon. If you obey, you'll prosper in the land. Turn with me to 2 Nephi chapter 1. As Lehi brings his children to the promised, his promised land, he gives them a condition. Now, we're going to see this is the very condition that Moses gives the children of Israel as he brings them into a promise. See the similarity? Lehi bringing his family to America and Moses bringing them into the promised land. This is Lehi's promise. Starting in verse 7 of 2nd Ephi chapter 1, wherefore this land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. And if it so be that they shall serve him. There's an if and a then. Ready? If it so be that they shall serve him, look at some of the promises. Verse 7, it will be a land of liberty. They will never be brought down into captivity. In verse 9, I, Lehi, have obtained a promise that inasmuch as those whom the Lord God shall bring out of the land of Jerusalem shall keep his commandments, they shall prosper, they shall be kept, they shall be blessed, none will molest them, and no one will take away their land and they will dwell safely. Those are all the positives if we live in a sacred place and we keep the commandments. Now, here are the negatives. Starting in verse 10, Behold, I say, if the day shall come that they, meaning our descendants in America, will reject the Holy One of Israel. This is what happens if we live in America and reject the Holy One. Verse 11, he will bring other nations unto them. He will give them power over them. He will give unto them power, meaning the nations that come, and he will take away from them, meaning the people that are here, the lands of their possession, and he will cause them to be, ready? Here's our magic word, scattered and smitten. I mean, that's right out of Deuteronomy 28. Now, let me show you that in Deuteronomy. Actually, I'm going to take you back to Leviticus. 26, and then I'll show you the same thing in Deuteronomy. It's the same pattern. As you read Leviticus 26, you're going to see almost the exact same list you just saw in 2 Nephi. Verse 3, he says, If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then here are all the positives. He says, Rain in due season, land will yield her increase. Notice verse 5, you will eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely peace in your land, verse 6, none to make you afraid. Rid evil beasts out of your land. Chase your enemies. Um, Verse 9, I will have respect unto you. I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. I will establish my covenant. 11, I will set my tabernacle among you. Verse 12, I will walk among you. I will be your God. Then verse 14, but if you don't hearken unto me, and will not do these commandments, we get a whole nother list. And you're going to find that's the same idea that other nations are going to come and they're going to spoil you. And then he says at the very end, verse 33, here's our S word, I will scatter you. That's the message. If you live on sacred soil and you keep the commandments, God will bless and prosper you. If you reject God, he will scatter you. So now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. He's going to be very, very specific, and he's actually going to tie us into it. Now we come into the story. The Latter-day Saints come into the story. Deuteronomy chapter 4 is kind of the negative verse. Verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land wherein ye go over to Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among all the nations and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, whether the Lord shall lead you. And there you shall serve gods, the works of men's hands, wood and stone, neither see nor hear nor smell nor eat. Now, the poetic justice in that is, Israel, if you want to be like the world, that's exactly where I will send you. I will send you out among the world because that's all you are to me, is you're just like everyone else. If you're not going to be a special people, I will scatter you. Now watch what he does in verse 29. And all the Latter-day Saints need to be listening very carefully. But if from thence, after you get scattered, but if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul, when thou art in tribulation and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shall be obedient unto his voice, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy father, which
1: he sware unto them. I mean, that's the Book of Mormon. That's
0: the Book of Mormon. That's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that is modern Israel being gathered because we remember the covenant and we keep it. You're going to find that same pattern in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. 29 is the negative. 29 is all about if you don't follow the covenant, then the Lord's going to destroy the land. Then 30 is the promise of the gathering. I want to focus on the gathering because that's our day. He says in verse 1 of chapter 30, When all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, and thou shalt call them to mind among the nations, verse 2, and shall return unto the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day. Jump to verse 3. Then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. That's our day. End of verse 4. From thence will the Lord thy God gather thee. And from thence, he will, I love this word, fetch thee. That's what missionaries are doing all over this planet. We are fetching Israel back home. Anyone who will remember the covenant. Verse 5, the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed and thou shalt possess it. He will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. The Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And he goes on. The rest of chapter 30 is that same promise. But do you see the parallel here? Those of you who are descendants of the covenant and live in sacred places like the Nephites do in America— lehi says if you obey here are your blessings if you break those commandments here are the challenges here are the curses that are coming and the deuteronomists are writing this from the perspective of we chose the wrong path
1: and we got wrecked and we're now pleading with you to choose the right path by the way before we go on since we're already here and i'm just looking at these verses look in chapter 31 if you look in chapter 31 and you read verse 6 That is a really good jumping off place to the Deuteronomistic historian's portrayal of Joshua. I mean, verse six of the 31st chapter, be strong and of good courage and fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that will go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And then verse seven, Moses is going to call Joshua and Joshua going to lead and be strong and of good courage. And that is the theme of the book of Joshua. It's actually, Joshua those Joshua chapter words, one. Yeah. yeah, I mean, those words are essentially used. And so the scholars are looking at this saying, oh my goodness, whoever put together and edited Deuteronomy is doing the same stuff with Joshua. And everything Bryce just talked about This idea of if I'm obedient, I'll be prosperous, and it's generational. You know, I see this as a collective kind of thing, meaning if you and your family and their children and their children keep the terms of the covenant and they seek after the Lord, collectively they'll prosper. But we need to be reminded that Elder Christofferson mentioned in conference where he said essentially, The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a cosmic vending machine. I really like that. When he said that, it just resonated with me because I think we can take that too far and say, oh, I'm keeping the commandments and everything's going to be prosperous and wonderful. But from the perspective of the Deuteronomist, as Bryce has mentioned, they're editing this in the exile and they're seeing we've lost our temple. We've lost our land. Now what? And this is where the pendulum kind of pushes a little bit too far, in my opinion. The idea is, well, we got to keep the law. And for a long time, the land was the center of the covenant. And as the Jews got scattered in the diaspora, as they were scattered throughout the land, the law took preeminence because they didn't have a temple. And what's interesting is in our theology, it's not tied so much to the land as it's tied to keeping the commandments and the temple, but the temple is a projection of the land promise. We'll see this in Ezekiel when we get to that. But the idea in Ezekiel that's taught is that wherever the temple is, it will heal the land. And I think that's another reason why in conference we announce, hey, we're we're building these temples because every time a temple is built, it cosmically heals the land. In essence, By the people that live there that keep the covenant, it actually changes the nature of those relationships and the city that we live in. Imagine a city where over half the people are keeping the commandments and seeking the Lord. What would that do to that city or that nation or that family? Keep the commandments and prosper. I look at this as a collective thing, not necessarily a one-to-one relationship. Okay, so some other themes from the Deuteronomistic historian's point of view that really coincide with the Book of Mormon are these. Both the authors of Deuteronomy and of the Book of Mormon are writing for their own time and for the future. We see this in Mormon 8.34, where it says, Behold, the Lord has shown unto me great and marvelous things concerning that which must shortly come at the day when these things shall come forth among you. Behold, I speak unto you as if you are present, and yet you are not. And so right there, these things or these words that Mormon is putting together He's writing for his people, but he's writing for us. And that's really the theme of Deuteronomy. Both books, Deuteronomy and the Book of Mormon, contain warnings about future destruction. They both contain the idea that their discovery brings religious reform. I mean, if we read Second Kings 22 and 23 and we identify the book of the law that was discovered as the book of Deuteronomy, then I think that fits. Both books are purported as being lost, hidden and then to be discovered at a later time. The book of the law was found in the temple, and then it was read, and then it was enacted in 2 Kings 22 and 23. And the book of Mormon was hidden, and it was discovered, and it did change the way people viewed religion. And then finally, both texts, the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Mormon, are self-referential literature. One author writes this, Deuteronomy is an example of self-referential literature. The Book of Mormon is a book about itself as a book. Think about that. That's pretty interesting to think about. Both the Book of Mormon and Deuteronomy refer to themselves. Deuteronomy is the first and I believe the only book in the Bible that refers to itself as a book. And Deuteronomy is written to people of the past as well as people of the future. So there's some really interesting themes that fit both texts, both the Book of Mormon and Deuteronomy. And so as much as I disagree with some of the theological elements when it comes to how they view God and visions and those kinds of things, I think that what Nephi takes is all the good stuff that Deuteronomy is teaching and he runs with it. And I think in that sense, Deuteronomy is beautiful. Yeah.
0: I want to do one more common theme among the two of them, and that is this idea of going into a prosperous land and prospering and be careful not to let your pride destroy you. That's a major theme in the Book of Mormon. It comes up almost immediately in Jacob chapter 2. As soon as they get to the promised land, not very long after that, Jacob is condemning them for their pride. And they think they're better than others and they're putting other people down. And we shouldn't do that. And we find that in Deuteronomy. It's that same message about beware of the prosperity that's coming in your life because we're going into this promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 7, the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. He describes it. Verse 9, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it. Now here's the danger verse 10 When thou hast eaten and art full then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God last verse 12 When thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein verse 13 when you've multiplied verse 14 that's the moment when your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God. The moment of your prosperity is the moment you will forget the Lord your God. And you will say in verse 17, my power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Now, that's a major theme of the Book of Mormon, which culminates in Helaman. I know this is quite a ways down the road, but see if this now sounds familiar. What we just read in Deuteronomy 8 about going into the promised land and don't forget God when prosperity comes. Helaman chapter 12, verse 2. And we may see at the very time when he doth prosper his people, yea, in the increase of their fields and their flocks and their herds, in gold and silver and in all manner of precious things of every kind of art, sparing their lives, delivering them out of the hands of their enemies, softening the hearts of their enemies that they should not declare wars against them, yea, in fine doing all the things for the welfare and happiness of this people, then is the time that they do harden their hearts and do forget the Lord their God and do trample under their feet, the Holy One. And this because of their ease and their exceedingly great prosperity. Do you see the similarity in those two messages? Bryce, I think culturally we're there now. We are there now. Our prosperity is our very challenge. And so way back, the Deuteronomist and Moses are saying, as you go into this promised land, I love thinking about this from the Deuteronomist perspective, who are writing this in the destroyed city looking at their city, having fallen apart, saying, you know what went wrong? We let our prosperity go to our head and we forgot God. And I think the Book of Mormon writers, I think Mormon is now sitting in that same position as the Deuteronomist writers saying, do you know what happened to the Nephites? Do you know where we went wrong? Every time we got rich, we let it go to our heads and we were destroyed. And so he's writing the Book of Mormon, like the Deuteronomists are editing and redacting the Book of Deuteronomy, to plead with us to not forget God as we go into this prosperous land. Let that be a major message, both from the Book of Mormon and from the Old Testament. Beware of the temptation in our prosperity to say, like in Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, my power did this. The might of my hand did this. And the Lord has to teach us the hard way. No, it wasn't you.
1: It was the God that we worship that prospered us. I like that. I think that's important. Now, the book of Deuteronomy ends with this very interesting thing where Moses dies. And yet the text says his sepulcher is not known unto this day. Now, think about this. Don't you think that the Israelites, when they're about to leave and come and cross over Jordan with Joshua, that if Moses died and they buried him, that they would know where his sepulchre is. And so for hundreds of years in Judaism, they wrestled with these verses in Deuteronomy and they asked questions like, why do we not know where his sepulchre is? And legends arose and they would debate and talk about it and try to figure out why it says this. And then biblical scholars read these verses and said, well, clearly Moses didn't write this because, you know, I can't really talk about my death in the first person if I'm dead. And then there's all this stuff in Deuteronomy where Moses is speaking in the third person. But we're going to end this podcast with addressing the quote, I'm using air quotes here with my hands, the quote, death of Moses. So let's talk about
0: that. This is one that the Bible clearly gets wrong, and this is core to our doctrine here, and and we'll talk about why, but the Bible clearly states, it says very clearly in verse 5 of chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there. Verse 6, he buried him in the valley. We just don't know where, but he died, and the Lord buried him, and he was 120 years old. But that is not true. We know it's not
1: true because the Book of Mormon tells us, and even the New Testament tells us it's not true. And then you get into even Josephus says, hey, he was taken up by God, so we'll, we'll talk about that too. Yeah. So Alma chapter 45, in verse 18, Alma,
0: the beloved prophet of Alma, is also going to suddenly disappear. It says in verse 18 that when Alma had done this, he departed out of the land of Zarahemla as if to go to the land of Malak. And it came to pass that he was never heard of more, as to his death or burial we know not of. Does that sound familiar? But behold, this we know, that he was a righteous man, and the same went abroad in the church, that he was taken up by the Spirit, or buried by the hand of the Lord, even as Moses. But behold, the Scripture saith that the Lord took Moses unto himself. And we suppose that he has also received Alma in the spirit unto himself. Therefore, for this cause, we know nothing
1: concerning his death and burial. It's interesting that Josephus talks about this. Now, Josephus is a first century historian, and he says, and this is in Antiquities of the Jews book four, Josephus says, as soon as they had come to a mountain, he dismissed the men. And as he was going to embrace Eleazar and Joshua and was still talking with them, a cloud stood over him on the sudden, and he disappeared. Although it is written in the holy books that he died, that was done out of fear. Now, this is Josephus and Antiquities of the Jews, book four, chapter eight. Now, why would he say this? My take on Josephus, if you read his stuff, he has access to historical records and he's doing his best to put together these histories. And I believe the reason why he's saying this is because there were Jews that taught this and that's where he's getting it. And then there's this Samaritan text called Memar Marka and it says this, great was the joy that obeyed in Moses's heart when he saw the angels standing about him on the right and on the left, behind and before him. The great glory took him by his right hand embracing him and walking before him. Later, we'll talk about that God made a sleep to fall upon him. So it's kind of this combination. Was he taken up? Did he die? I don't think the Samaritan text settles the issue. But what I find interesting is that there's glory associated with his departing. He's taken by the right hand and he's embraced. Now, as a parenthetical side note, at the end of Oedipus at Colonus, the same thing happens to Oedipus. He's at a sacred mountain There's an embrace, there's an exchange of symbols, and he's taken by the right hand. And then Zeus thunders and Oedipus is no more. It's the apotheosis of Oedipus. And I'm reading this in my secular learning, and I'm reading these Jewish texts about the traditions of Moses going into a cloud, being taken by the right hand and embracing. And I read Alma 45, and I see this as an ascension. But I think, Bryce, the real question is why? Yeah. So doctrinally speaking, let's ask that. Why does all of this happen? Because I think there
0: would have been a fitting tribute to allow Moses to die and build a monument that everyone could visit and say, here was the great lawgiver. Here was the great deliverer. Here's the one that was the Lord's instrument in getting us out of Egypt. So why is it that Moses doesn't die? We know that at least on this planet, the first fruits of the resurrection have to be Jesus. Jesus comes forth from the dead first. No one can be resurrected prior to Christ. But in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Verse 2 of chapter 17, he was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, which is Elijah, talking with him. Now, we know as Latter-day Saints that the reason for that visit was to bestow upon Peter, James, and John the keys of the kingdom. So Moses came and brought keys to Peter, James, and John. He could not have laid his hands upon physical bodies and passed on keys if he were a disembodied spirit. He can't have died, be a spirit, and pass keys on to Peter, James, and John. So instead, the Lord took Moses up like he did Elijah. Both of them will be taken to heaven as translated beings and reserved for this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, where with translated physical bodies, they can descend and give keys to Peter, James, and John. Now fast forward to section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants. After the Kirtland Temple is built, The curtain is closed, and Joseph and Oliver have a marvelous vision. First Jesus comes and accepts the house, and then who appears? Moses. This time we believe as a resurrected being because now he can die and be resurrected because this is post-Christ resurrection. Now as a resurrected being, the great lawgiver comes back to the Latter-day Saints and lays that wonderful hand on Joseph Smith and says, Joseph, what I did in Egypt you and the Latter-day Saints must now do in all the world. You must deliver the people of God out of bondage and bring them into a promised land. I want every one of you to realize that we are physically, by touch, connected to this man Moses that everything that he did, all the law that he gave, all the miracles that he performed, he has come in our day and touched Joseph Smith's head and passed all of that on to us. We are modern-day Moses. As a group, as a Latter-day Saint people, we are now Moses, and we are the ones that have to go out to friends and neighbors and then accept mission calls and go to Yugoslavia and Africa and South America and wherever Heavenly Father's children are, we have to free them from the bondages that have claimed them because their hearts are crying out in repentance like the Deuteronomist prophesied that they would do. They are crying out for God, and we are now going to save them from the bondage of modern-day Egypt and bring them back to the promised land. May we rise up and be that people, the people of Moses, and save Israel is my prayer and my hope. Yeah,
1: excellent stuff. There's so much in here, and this would be a massive podcast. If we talked about everything in it, if we went down all the rabbit holes. In fact, it could be a semester course. So if you're one of those people where you want to pull on some of these threads, we did put an outline out there in the show notes that you can look at, and we cover some of these things in depth. So with that, we will see you next week when we cross Jordan with Joshua and go into the land of milk and honey. Thanks for being with us and make it a great week.